the whole idea of partnering with somebody for me is it sacred or superfluous? And and from my perspective, and after conversing with the two of you, I don't think that it's superfluous. I think that it has a sacred part in all of our lives as humans. And I think that it's, it's helped shape who we are. Did you know the average couple waits six years to get help in their marriage? Yeah, that's six years of pain, hurt, and frustration. Hi there, I'm Charlotte Snow. And I'm Robert Snow. And welcome to Master Your Marriage. Where we believe that having an amazing marriage should never feel like hard work, and shouldn't be a guessing game. This is the show for married couples who want to discover a scientifically proven approach to building a masterful marriage and have fun while doing it. So if that's you, you're in the right place. Let's dive in. This week, Robert and I had the pleasure of joining Devo on the Little Impolite podcast, yep. which is a show that's really fun, slightly uncomfortable, <laughs> sometimes controversial, but always really thought-provoking and, and definitely entertaining. And we really recommend checking out his show. He tackles a whole bunch of different topics, but in this episode, we get into a bit of a philosophical discussion on marriage, divorce, conflict, and our favorite topic, marriage as an instrument for growth. So let's dive right in. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Hi. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for, having. for having us. No, seriously, yeah. have you been married for 31 years? What, how old are you? you guys are the traditional marriage? You're wet so, off at 16, 12. We, I was young. I was 19. And so I'm 50 now. Robert's, I wasn't that young. Robert's 57. Well and we're like forever people that we're just going to figure this out. And we sucked at it at first. We were really bad at it at first, but oh, we were it's horrible. We were stubborn and determined. That's how we did it initially. I want to, before we dive into how you've done it and get to know you a little bit, I, I want to cite some data points that I've uncovered around marriage. Since the early 1900s, the average age of our first marriage was 21 for women and 24 for men. Today, it's 28 and 30, respectively. 50% of marriages in the early 20th century lasted until one partner died. Today, about 40% in divorce. That's like complete reverse around from that data point. I found this one to be interesting. Cohabitation before marriage has increased by more than 900% over the last 50 years. So what's the correlation between that number and the degradation of, of marriage? In 1960, 72% of all adults were married. And by 2000, 2019, this number dropped to 50%. Like this, Those are just bonkers numbers to me. I can go on and on. There's a bunch of stuff. The one that really caught me is the percentage of children living with two parents declined from 88% to 69% in the 2000, early 2000s, and now that's even higher. I'm a single father. I have raised predominantly my two teenage daughters now since they were five and you know, six and three, respectively. So their mother's been in and out, and we've had some interesting dynamics with there. But that specific piece really jumped out at me because most of my friends around me are getting divorced now, are divorced. Mm -hmm. And I guess I just really wanted to jump into a show and talk about the evolution of marriage, how, where it was, how it first began, like it's a construct, right? The traditional concept mm -hmm. of it, and then where you might see it going. So how does that sound? Okay, let's that's, do it. That's fun. That's awesome. Let's, let's do, do it. Thing. Yeah. When Robert and I talk about marriage, we use the term pretty loosely because of a lot of the things that you've just said. We Our show is the Master Your Marriage show, show, but we're really not just talking about marriage in that construct, in that legal term that you're talking about. Because now we have different gender roles, we have different types of unions, and in some places in the world, there's, there's, there may not even be places where people can still be legally married. And so 
we use the term loosely and really what we're referring to is any emotionally committed relationship, whatever that, however that is defined by you individually, we're looking at monogamous, emotionally committed relationships. And that's who we work with. Has that definition changed for both of you as you've evolved through 31 years of marriage? And how long have you been doing this as a profession together? Let's see, we started NLP coaching 12 years ago, but that has actually morphed into where we just only exclusively work with couples now. Initially, that wasn't the case, but we've been doing this work for about 12, 13 years. Yeah, on and off. In the 12 years since I've been divorced since 2013, and I can tell you it's just my core philosophies on how life operates and the constructs of it have evolved and changed as I've mm-hmm. learned more, experienced more, et cetera. So I guess you know, age with a little bit of wisdom, hopefully. Have your principles and philosophies changed from 12 years ago to how you view marriage then versus how you view it now? No, for sure. It changes all the time and, and morphs and develops. Do you have anything specific that you want to? Yeah, I think that at first, you know, it was the we've been married and it was the whole institution of marriage. And and as I think as we work with more couples and as we experience more of our friends, much like you with relationships, like coming and going and literally watching them implode in front of our eyes, we start to see the value of being emotionally committed almost more than we see the value. It's going to be hard to say that the value of this whole marriage certificate. We like to see people who are committed like this is my ride or die like this is the one i'm with and and the more we have those conversations with people the more my view and and probably our view on what is exactly an emotionally committed relationship and and what does that mean for people those have changed and we've learned a lot by working with couples about problems that they have and and certainly they're we've had our set of problems but we've learned that people have different other problems different problems in and learn to respect the challenges that they've had in their relationships. And we look at each other and we're like, wow, that would be hard. I don't, well, I don't know what we would do if we hit that bump in the road. And I think for me, the major shift in my thinking, and I think I would say both of our thinking in regards to even our own relationship, is that we no longer, we see relationships now through the lens of this is an opportunity for us to grow for us to up level. And I think relationships, emotionally committed relationships, whether that's marriage under that certificate or not, they are going to bring up all of our stuff, all of our baggage, all of those trigger buttons that were installed in us from our parents or our caretakers from when we were little. There's nobody on this planet that is going to ruffle our feathers more than our partner. And in those situations, that's an opportunity for growth. And we always use the analogy of the refiner's fire, right? The In the Bible, there's the, the story, the metaphor of the refiner's fire, and you're melting down silver and gold, and it brings this stuff, the impurities up to the surface so that they can be taken away and you can mold and reshape that metal. <clears throat> and the same is really true in relationships. Our stuff is going to rise to the surface and we can either let that destroy our relationship or we can look at it and go, okay, here's an opportunity for us to be reshaped and remolded and become a better version of ourselves. And so marriage is, for me, the way that I think we've seen it through a new light now is this is, okay, let's grow. We got problems. Okay, let's grow. So are you implying that by that logic, all relationships, all marriages, all potential partnerships are fixable and resolute in some way, shape, or form? Ooh, that's a that's such a good question. I would think that all relationships, barring any barring a significant breach of trust, right? So like I trust that you're not gonna do whatever that is, right? 
barring a significant breach of trust, if there was enough to bring you together, there should be enough to stay together. Sometimes people come together for reasons that are a bit not necessarily spiritually guided. People that are physically attracted to each other and they have one night stands and whatnot. But I'm talking in the sense of just the whole idea of if you've made the commitment to get married to someone, even if it was half-witted and ill-advised, do you feel that we are personally obligated to remain in that and steadfast in that regardless of circumstances? No, I think going back to the question before that one, if you have two people who are willing to do whatever it takes, that's Mm. really the question. If you have two people who are willing to do whatever it takes, I do think that we can generally almost always save it. There's Mm. always something worth fighting for. And if you don't have two people who are willing to do whatever it takes, I don't, I think that there are times and places when divorce is actually absolutely necessary. Yes. Have you encountered couples in your treatment therapies where you're like, I just don't see uh, a way through this. Like it might be in your best interest to part ways. Yeah. 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 If there's a major disagreement over, for example, having children, one absolutely has to have children and the other one is I'm absolutely never having children. You can't create half of a human. So there are situations where there is really no compromise, right? And there's situations where couples are not in it, where one party isn't willing to do whatever it takes. They're not willing to do the work. They're not willing to make those changes to certain behaviors that are are really hurtful and harmful and destructive to the relationship. Do you bring a bit of, are, you have a, a religious background, the two of you? We do. Yeah. And do you bring that into your counseling as part of some of your guiding principles and core beliefs? And does that have any affectation on how you counsel people? Yes and no. I, I think when it's appropriate, if the client that we're working with has a similar background, then sure. But as a whole, we have to meet the people, meet our clients where they are and where their beliefs are and work with them. So that isn't something that that I personally bring into sessions unless it's useful to the situation. Yeah. I'm mean, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Robert. You had. No, I was going to say that I think that yeah, I think you have to look at marriage as an institution as a whole that is rooted in religion. Right? And it's, oh, go to church, get married kind of a thing. And so I, I think that when people reach out and they're like, oh, my marriage is suffering, I think they, I think at times they feel like one of two things it's their emotionally committed relationship, or sometimes they're struggling with the religious part of it. And so I think that our approach really is which part is it that you need to work on? Because People are not going to like me for this, but I, oftentimes I don't think your religion can save your marriage. Just because you, were, you had the same religion and you got married, I don't think that's a, sometimes the world's best reason to stay together, especially if there's a lot of other things to it. I don't know if that really answered the question that yeah. I wanted. But. In our world, we, we do work with a large amount of people who have a, a religious background. And one of, the, one of the big problems that I actually see is they, there's a lot of shame around getting help, that there's a belief that if we just pray harder or we pray together, that's going to save our marriage. And it just really, there's some very religious people that we work with that have really big marriage problems. Like they they need to have a certain skill set and everyone comes into a relationship with baggage and they need tools, regardless of whether they're religious or not. And for me, I, I just, I don't feel like I can help anyone get out of their box, their problem that they're in if I'm judging their situation. So we have to be very open-minded in what we do and be able to work with anyone from any background. Yeah, I, I like that response. And I don't really necessarily want to go into a conversation around religious aspect. I was just curious what role it has, because I know even my beliefs, they set the tone, the context for you know everything I do and how I interact with people and how I engage with people. And, and I find it sometimes it's hard not to have judgmental or non-objective 
perspectives of things going into it just based upon what I've learned about life. So I was just wondering if that get carried over. So let's, we just jumped straight into this, didn't we? No softballs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the two of you. How did you meet? You've been married for 31 years. Where do y'all live? What's the part of the country you're from? We live about an hour south of Salt Lake City, Utah. And okay. we've oh, been you here got up early for, for me. Thank you. Very. Yeah. We did. We've been here for five years. Prior to that, we spent our lives in California, Southern California. What and part of Southern Cal? North, San Diego, North, North, North County. Yeah, North San Diego. Oh, I'm a San Diego native. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if we share that. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Welcome. So kind of around Oceanside and that area, that's oh, the yeah. Carlsbad area. That's where mm -hmm. we were from. Mm -hmm. Cool. I used to take my dogs every morning across through Rancho Santa Fe because I lived in Escondido at the time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now I drive through those beautiful canyons and head oh. to Del Mar Beach and take my dogs to the Del Mar Beach right there. Yeah, beautiful. Dog Beach in Del Mar right by the... Yeah. Right, right, no, right where that's at. Yep. So I'm going to flip this question because everybody always asks me that. What the fuck did you leave California and come to Charlotte, North Carolina for? So <laughs> why did you leave San Diego and move to where you are now? We we still love California. We go back all the time and we still have our two oldest kids that are living there. And we just hear there's so much outdoor life and there's so much nature and so yeah. much beauty and so many ways for us to have more peace and joy and less work. And so we just have fun here. We have fun. And that's why we're here. I was actually supposed to go out there and shoot in the, it's like, I guess it's called your desert, but it's like the sand, sandy area. I don't know what it's called, but the Badlands or something. What's that area called where it's like long salt beds and stuff? Oh yeah. Around Salt Lake. So the salt flats. So there's a salt, salt flats. flats. Yeah. yeah. Salt flats. Yeah. That's cool up there. That's yeah. I was supposed to go show, go out there and shoot and then they were engaged and we were going to do a, a photo shoot out there and they broke up. So oh, it's like, mm -hmm. Damn your marriage. I was supposed to go there for my own portfolio. So anyhow, San Diego, Utah, you've been married 31 years. How'd the two of you meet? We met at a single like adult, actually, church dance. I was 19. He was 25, 24, 25. Yeah. Yeah. And he was actually working at the door and taking money at the door for this dance. And I walked in and I said, this looks really boring. I was with my friend. I said, I think we're going to leave. And he said, stay. I'll make sure you have a good time. And wow, <laughs> and the rest is history. I guess she had a good time because here next, we are. The next date happened. It was good. So you went on a date right away after that? The next day. The next oh, wow. Day, is yeah. that what you just said? Sorry, I didn't hear that. Yeah, no, I got to close the deal, dude. Yeah, I like it. Man, I love the confidence. I actually tried a similar tactic that I wasn't working the door, but when I was in college, there was this girl named Christine and I was thought she was the most beautiful woman on the planet. And I didn't have much of a game back in those days. And I just dropped her like four dozen roses of flower, four dozen flowers one day. And was, I'd never mm -hmm. even spoken to her before, but she thought it was a little bit weird. So it didn't really work out for me. So oh, um, I don't have, I need to get your game, Robert. He was um, ultra confident. I think that's what attracted to me to him initially was his, his, little ego he had yeah, that's, a, that's a whole different thing we, there's a whole story about working the door but it was like nobody else wanted to work the door at the beginning of the dance and i was like i get to hold every girl's hand i don't understand what the problem is here I get to scout out what i'm looking for all right so you go on your first date and, and then how long after the first date till you got married a year later oh wow you move fast people yeah okay so in 31 years of marriage there's this sort of idea that marriage at least this is my idea. I don't know if anybody else hears it. I feel like marriage makes us better versions of ourselves. If you can find the right person, like mm -hmm. even your family or your friends, like the right people you surround yourself with, it they make you a better version of yourself. So how, from that perspective, how has committing to each other 30 years, 31 years ago, made each of you a better person of yourself? Oh my gosh. Well, such a good question. And it's perfect because we talk, I, if you've heard a little bit of the podcast, my one of my favorite quotes is, welcome to your marriage or relationship. It's a masterclass in personal development. 
And that's really what it is. As Charlotte alluded to earlier, it's in this relationship, in this committed relationship, being able to learn how to move past your stuff, being able to learn how to be calm and accept influence and grow up, right? It's not all about you. And that's the hardest part. I think Jordan Peterson's got a, I think he has a quote about having kids and he says, you're never really going to grow up until you have kids because you, until you sacrifice yourself for something greater than you, then you're never really going to get outside of just being you. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody needs to have kids in order to do that. But you, as you have two teenage daughters, congrats, dude, you're raising them. That's a bold move. I, I and, question that every day on one of them. Yeah, yeah. But they <laughs> one will. of them is like, they're complete opposite. And they're oh, just yeah, so it, unique funny. in their own disposition it, about how they take everything. It, so. You feed them the same sandwiches and they grow up completely different. Just, I don't understand what happened. Where do we get these two disparate individuals? But that's the it, beauty is they're individuals. Yeah, so it's interesting making you a better version of yourself. I, and I've talked about this journey before on my podcast. So I won't be overly repetitious on it. But I felt that in my first marriage, I was just putting in time. And, and I've confessed this many times that I could have been a better version of myself in that particular marriage. Um, but I was focused on other things. I didn't particularly, we didn't particularly see eye to eye on, on very many things. And, and the reasons that we got married were completely outside of the topic of this. But nonetheless, I do notice that in retrospect, having been married for 10 years, and I've known her for 17, that I don't see it as a waste of time. There was a boatload of lessons and a boatload of opportunities that have shaped who I am today. But I've also noticed that in each, and I've been in three serious relationships since my marriage, that in each of those three relationships, there was like a whole different sort of persona that I, that I learned and brought into myself from the partner that I was with, from how one was like fearless and just looked spontaneous and get up and do whatever. And I was always like, we got to plan shit out. It's got to be meticulous and pragmatic. And then, so I learned lessons in that one. And then, but that didn't last. That was a couple of years. Then I moved into a different relationship and this person was, everything was about growth and learning to become a, like better professionally and like really focusing on things. And I know I never had that perspective, but it was like a holistic perspective that I'd never seen before. So it was like the spiritual side of life. I'd never really focused on that. And then my most recent relationship, it's been one of the most growth-based because she's completely different than anyone I've ever been around. And so, like, I've had to take, and, and she has children, which is, I suddenly have two microwave kids, three microwave kids in my life that I've never mm -hmm. had before. So, I'm noticing that in this relationship now, I'm having to completely change who, or not change, but adapt and grow who I thought I was versus what I need to be in this particular relationship. So, mm -hmm. In 31 years, sorry, I'm getting to a question. You guys are like, I'm falling asleep. To get it. That's a good question. In 31 years of marriage, have can you physically draw out on a, a timeline? Like these are the phases that we were in together and what we learned in that phase. And then that phase ended because only permanence is impermanence. And so then the, here's phase two begins. Can you clearly document mm -hmm. those in your life? Well, I don't know if it's super clear, like here it was today and not tomorrow, but Esther Perel has a really famous quote. She did a TED talk and she said, most couples are going to have two or three relationships in their lifetime. Sometimes they do it with the same person. And I love that concept because it really is, sometimes we do move on and we find someone else. And sometimes we reinvent ourselves with the, with the relationship that we currently have. And every day we work with couples who are in the process of trying to recreate their relationship better than what it was last year. And when we first got married, I will tell you just on the growth question that you just asked, we were a mess. We were a hot mess. Both of us came from 
parents who his mom was married four times. My mom divorced. We both had very unhealthy patterns that we came from in our primary family. And that stuff it stays with you for life. Like whether you realize it or not, those experiences that you have shapes the way that you see your present. And so when we first got into our marriage, I followed a lot of the same patterns. My mom treating my dad with a lot of contempt and criticism and very just a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling, a lot of chaos. And we got into our relationship and I started doing the same thing because that was all I knew. All I knew was how to treat him with absolute disdain in order to get him to comply and do things that I wanted him to do. And I don't know, it was six months or 12 months into our marriage. And he's like, Charlie, you can't talk to me the way that your mom talks to your dad. You can't do that. You can't talk to me the way that this person talks to that person. And wait, let me stop you there. So Robert, had you seen this observation in her parents already? So you've already, you, they okay. were still around in that space that you were able to observe yeah. this. Yeah. They so were this divorced. Sort of, they were it. divorced, but he still had seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Which so was, you have the, sorry, go ahead. No, she makes me sound like I'm super insightful and I was calm, but I don't, I think it, it came to a moment where I finally was just, I think it was just, it was probably hurt. And I'm less like, you just you can't do this. This is not the way that we're supposed to, to communicate. And I love it when she tells the story because I seem like I'm this wise person, whereas I was probably hot. And I, I don't remember it that way. I remember yeah. you actually as being really calm because I think that's why it stopped me in my tracks. Yeah, I'm, keep telling the story. I like it. <laughs> Sorry, let me deviate from where you're going and I want to get back to you. So uh, in the relationship roles the two of you play, because everybody takes on a role, is there a balance between the types of roles the two of you play with each other where one is more passive, one is more dominant in, in terms of everything? And does that interchange or do you take on personas in this relationship? Ooh, such a good question. Yes and no. I think early on, I was probably more passive because I was still just, think about this. My mom was married and divorced four times. I think the fourth one stuck. And so I was just like, I, I just want this marriage to work. And if I just got to eat it a little bit, then I'll just eat it. So I think initially I was passive and then, you know, I'm not really much of a passive person. Mm-hmm. And so I think finally that comes out. And so that when you're learning how to do it, it probably comes out in frustration and anger and, and in arguments and disagreements. And when I think in, in each of these versions of our relationship, no kids, teenagers, and then now almost done with kids, I think that we change and switch. But the passive one, and this is a longer conversation, the passive one in the relationship is always going to get run over and take advantage of. And so I, I don't think that anybody should be the passive one in the relationship. And I think that we've grown into our own when it comes to that, like, her opinion matters, my opinion matters, and we need to make sure that both of us are having an equal voice in all things in their relationship. So that passivity that you took on once you guys got connected, were you always a passive person or that bravado and confidence that you exerted at the guard station when she first walked in, was that like more of a swagger just because you wanted to see her and you were overcompensating? Or were you just, I'm, and I'm not, these are just questions. Like I'm, I just love the dynamics that people play because my dynamic in my relationship, my first marriage was completely changing and evolving all the time. So when you moved into sort of that morphed into that passive state, was that because you were overwhelmed with Sharla? Was there like something about Sharla that was just like, or was she just in that pattern one of disdain? I'm just going to be this person. You sort of just became shit. I don't want to get in her way type of thing. Mm-hmm, yes, I, w- I would say probably the, the latter. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that happens is when a communication pattern in relationships, and usually guys are better at it than girls, this thing called stonewalling, where we just shut down, <laughs> just keep talking, it's going to bounce off. And while that may seem passive, it's actually not passive. And so I think I was really just into that point where she fired up, fired me up so fast, my heart rate went up. And then I did this little stonewalling thing where I just, my eyes glaze over and in the back of my head, I'm like, is she going to be done yelling at me anytime soon? Because I got stuff to do. So 
passive in the sense that I didn't fight back, but not passive in the sense that it didn't bother me. It bothered me considerably until the point where I blew up or we tended to have conversations and boy, it was fire early on. It wasn't knock down, drag out. No, it wasn't typical. It was verbal. It was just, yeah. it was just contempt, criticism and defensiveness, defensiveness, all those, the nasty ones. Yeah. Were you guys, sorry, I have to ask, were you involved in the church at that point when you were married already? Yeah. So I know, again, I'm not making a judgment or just a statement because I know how the church views divorce. Those first few years where you were in your pattern number one that you were talking about, Charlotte, of sort of disdain and contempt and taking on the patterns and manifesting them out from what you had observed from your parents. Were you guys, Robert, you're like, Jesus, what the hell did I get myself into? Is this really going to work? But we have to make this work because this is part of our principles. What was your philosophy around that space? Now, I don't think we were like overly active in the church at that particular point. That was, we were just doing what we want to do. But I think we were both coming from relationships that had failed. I think we were just more stubborn. I think that's where our will to figure it out came from because we had been through such harsh childhoods that we were like, dang, we have to figure this out. We have to figure this out. This isn't working right. So it wasn't like we didn't have a choice. It was that we really wanted to figure it out. We would, for example, Robert's shared on the podcast before that he had a lot of baggage and trauma around abandonment, having not ever really got to see his dad when he was growing up because his dad didn't pay child support and having this kind of open door policy. So there was a lot of abandonment. We would have these conflicts come up in our early relationship where he would want to stay in the fight with me to try to where he would just, we would never take a break. We never wanted to take a break. And I think it came from the fact that we really wanted to work it out. And we didn't realize that taking a break would have actually helped prevent a lot of those mm -hmm. blowups from happening. But we just wanted to work it out so bad. You're 19 years old. What do you know at 19? Nothing. Nothing. Jack shit. Yeah. Really, yeah. in the scheme of things, maybe even less than that, actually. And we had, we still were like super attracted to each other. We had a lot of fun when we weren't fighting. We were out on our Hobie Cat. We were sailing down in San Diego Bay and we were like loving all the outdoor adventure things. Like we had a really good time together. So there was a lot worth fighting for. We just didn't know how to do conflict. I often wonder if marriages are like the Pareto principle, like that 80 20 rules, is if you can find the good balance of the things that are 80% good, or I'm not, maybe this is an arbitrary number, I'm just arguing from Pareto's point, that a good relationship has 80% good and 20% bad, and it's the 20% that you really have to work on. Do you feel like marriage falls into that same paradigm as well? Yeah. One of the things that came out of the Gottman research is that couples are going to have conflict. And in fact, even successful couples, they have conflict pretty much at the same rate as the couple's who are failing. So he had, he defined them as the masters and the disasters. So after doing all of this research, he had these two groups, what are the masters doing differently than the disasters? And he found in both groups, they still had conflict. In fact, 69% of the conflict in both cases was something he called perpetual, which means those problems would come up again and again and again. They were still talking about the same problems because he would bring them back into the lab every three years. They were still talking about the same crap 20 years down the road. They were still talking about the same issues. It's how they do the conflict. So it's not like you're ever going to be conflict free. And we never talk about let's resolve conflict because you're never going to resolve conflict. You're going to manage conflict. So how can we do that in a way that is actually going to make us successful? Yeah, I've always believed in the idea of how powerful conflict can be. It's growth and personal development and problem solving and making faster, better decisions and getting clarification of ideas and all the different things. And I, I really, truly feel like the reason my first marriage failed was poor communication and around how we conflicted. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Conflict is how your relationship goes. Yes. I, I still want to get back to your pattern. So you have pattern one and we can move on yeah. off of that one. We <laughs> talked about it. It was this sort of this 
disdain. Yeah, volatility. So you guys, Robert stops being passive and he steps in and he's okay. I'm really enough of this. We need to get back to who we are. It's where we fell in love in the first place. So you move into a different stage of your relationship. Yeah. So I would say I'm just shooting off the hip here, but I think that I would call stage two is the one that sort of ended in a little bit of complacency. So that's where we had kids. And what people don't realize is that kids is supposed to be this like wonderful thing that happens to your relationship. And it can be beautiful. But in 67% of relationships, when we bring kids into the equation, about 67% of couples actually go into extreme dissatisfaction, a lot of complacency. The cool part is we can learn from the the 33%, what are they doing differently? Because in the other 33%, they actually increase in satisfaction or it stayed the same, but a lot of them increased in satisfaction. But we fell into a, a little bit of complacency when we had kids. We weren't prioritizing each other. We were putting each other, we were building businesses and we were having kids and we were like, you do soccer and I'll do baseball and doing all this. And it's like, when do we have time for us? It's easier to maintain your relationship when it struggles that way though. So marital dissatisfaction on one side, then you have these kids and then all of a sudden you just look, I'm just going to pour my energy into this little person who still likes me because this other person I struggle with. And so then you can see how that happens where people just, both couples end up dumping all of their energy into their children and they're no good together, but they're good with their kids. And, but then this is what marriage is supposed to be like. And we, I think I fell into that. We're like, I'm just going to do baseball with the boys. Like, that's fine. Right. They love me. I love doing this. And I feel like a good dad. And then how can she, how can she blame me for spending time with the kids? So are you suggesting that was a win because your kids got the benefit of that? Or you're, I mean, no, I guess, no. no, I think a lot of us use our kids as a way to not deal with mm. this stuff in our relationship. It's a, yeah. a little bit of a scapegoat and that's not a good thing. There's a way to do both. There is a way to create an actual win and that's not a win. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I'm one of 12 kids. I have 11 brothers and sisters. So wow. yeah. So there's so much, so many things you can probably unpack in my childhood. How much do you feel? Because you've talked about it a couple of times. How much do you feel unresolved childhood trauma plays a part in your current state of a marriage? (laughs) How about everything? I'll just say it. Whatever you bring into the relationship is going to show up. In Uh any context of life, whether that's in your relationship, your marriage, your friendships, in spirituality, in your health and fitness, in career, in any area of life, if you're not where you want to be, I'm willing to bet a lot of money that it's probably a result of stuff in the past you need to let go. Hmm. So in the patterns that you were developing that we've talked about, pattern one of this chaos, if you will, pattern two, you've talked about complacency. How were the two of you self-aware enough, or was it just a station of time and wisdom? How were the two of you self-aware enough to take those childhood traumas that you both had experienced? It sounds like you both had some issues. And metastasize, how do you say that? Metastasize? Metastasize. Metastasize, thank you. I was actually a spelling bee champion in sixth grade, San Diego. I don't even know how to, I don't know how to spell it, but I do know how to say it. So. How do you <laughs> metastasize those into a self-awareness so that you can improve yourself through this process? What have you done? Were you bouncing off each other? It sounds like there's some candid conversations that have occurred, but how have the two of you enabled yourselves to continue to grow? So I think one of the things that happens, especially when you get into this complacency, right, is I think you have to have these pivotal moments. You, yeah. you almost have to, you can't, Complacency is what it is. It's, oh, it's, I, I got enough going on here and this is fine. Nothing. So the wheels haven't fallen off. They're like a car that's running fine, but not great. So conflict. You need to conflict. have some yes. conflict. Yeah. yeah. So you had to have, and not just conflict, but I think a pivotal conflict. And so we have this, as we look back and we talk to people, one of our, one of our pivotal moments is when 
I think we're having some conflict. And I was telling Sharla, I said, look, I just, I don't remember what it was, something about my feelings. And then Sharla said, what'd you say, Sharla? I like it when you said okay, this, actually, was, this was actually a little bit earlier. This was before, this might've been before. I was thinking of a different story about complacency, but yeah, he's talking about this time where I, I was still really unable to regulate my own emotions. I never saw anybody in my life regulate emotions. And so I was still great when I was in a good state, but the minute I was not in a good state, I was, I was not nice. One day he's, I, I got an idea. I'm going to read this book and I'm going to try this new technique. I'm going to tell her how I feel. And I was like, okay, I feel da 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 da. I don't remember what it was about this situation. And I just looked at him and I'm like, I don't give a shit how you feel. <laughs> but so I was that- flooded. I was flooded and I was like really charged up in the moment. I was in a, uh, anyway, it was not my finest moment. Laugh about that because that's the thing, right? As guys. And so what did I do? I reverted back to being the typical male version of guys, which is nobody cares about my feelings, right? The only people unconditionally loved are women, dogs, and children, right? So I'm just going to, I'm going to go back to just being me. So I get hard again. And and this one, I use that as a pivotal moment because really what it did is it changed this construct of the relationship back to me, like walls up, barrier done. Clearly I know my role. No one cares about me here. I'm going to take care of the kids. And so as we look back, we, when then the two of us start going like, what, well, what's missing? Why are we? Yeah. Well, that's why what is led, there more distance between us now? And because that once those wall. walls went up, that's when we really started to avoid vulnerability and to be able to have difficult conversations to be able, we weren't able to really have honesty in our conversations. And so it, that conflict though, I know that it is part of why we are the way we are today, right? Today we can have open honest communication. We can have conversations even around difficult topics because we know how bad it hurts when someone reacts poorly, me specifically, but when someone reacts poorly to a difficult conversation or honest feedback. And because of those experiences, because of those conflicts, it's shaped us into being who we are today. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's an undue societal pressure factor that keeps or forces couples to stay together, even if they're not really ever going to make it work? Sometimes. Yeah, I think religion. I think in a lot of religions, people and kids. Yes. So many people stick it out for the kids. Yeah. Yeah. Because they don't want to be one of the statistics that you talked at the top of the show, or they don't want to be like, oh, my kids are better off. My kids are better off in a two parent household because we know that single parent households have all kinds of downstream issues. I'm not saying one's good or the other. I'm just saying that your kids deserve to see a loving relationship where their parents learn how to work things out and showing emotional regulation rather than ignoring and fighting all the time. 100%. And, and that was ultimately why we walked away. We, we agreed that the two of us, this wasn't like one person at fault or another. We just both agreed that in the interest of our children, we would become mm-hmm. better parents for our kids, but not yeah. be together because we didn't want to model that for our children. And that was how we approached it. And we do, we've done a, again, we've done a fantastic job in my estimate as single parents raising our two daughters to this day. How do the two of you that in your relationship, and this is based upon all the different couples that you've counseled. First of all, do you have people that come in your door and you look at them and you're like, that's privately behind, we talked about this, they're, they're never going to last. What is that one, if you could, is there one or two underlying principles around that, that you see that they're not going to stay together or they are going to stay together? And have you ever looked at yourselves introspectively and we have these qualities that we see in other people that we know they're going to make them work. Therefore, we know that we can also work. I think to maybe better answer your question, 
I might start bringing up some of the Gottman research, if that's okay with you, because what we love about it is that success and failure in relationships is actually measurable and it's actually predictable. So many people think, oh, it's just a coin flip. It's just going to be a 50-50 chance. Maybe we make it. Maybe we don't make it. But Gottman really wanted to find out, were there things within relationships that actually were destructive that predicted divorce? Was there actually a way to predict the demise of a relationship? And so he brought in couples, hundreds, actually thousands. It was like three, maybe it was like 3,000 couples over the course of time. But he would bring them in, have them have three different discussions. First, he had them talk about just how their day was going for 15 minutes. Then he'd have them talk for 15 minutes about any conflict that they were, pick the biggest problem in your relationship, try to solve it in the next 15 minutes. Solve that in 15. Yeah, that's fine. And then the third conversation was to talk about something fun that was coming up, talk about a vacation or something you're planning and do that for 15 minutes. And then through these thousands of couples, he would bring them back three years later. Who was still together? Who was divorced? Or who was together, but miserably together? How, like, did you say three years later? Three years three? later. Yeah. And then three years after that, and three years after that, up to 20 years. So he was bringing them back for decades. And then he started compare and contrast. Were there things that were more corrosive to relationships than others? Were there certain communication patterns that were more corrosive and destructive? And as it turns out, he came up with eight predictors for divorce. And all of those predictors were discovered by observing that 15-minute conflict conversation. So just in 15 minutes, he was able to predict with 90 to 94% accuracy whether a couple would stay together. Think of that. Sit down, watch somebody have a conflict for 15 minutes, look at what patterns are in that conversation in 15 minutes and be able to predict with up to 94% accuracy whether they would stay together. So yeah, learning what those things are has definitely influenced our relationship. It's influenced ourselves like, ooh, repair, for example, like we are so much better now today. It's not like we're not going to have conflict. We absolutely still have perpetual problems like everybody else, but we can catch ourselves if we start to go into one of those patterns or when we start to see a conversation that's escalating versus, okay, wait, we need to de-escalate. We need to do something right now to de-escalate this conversation so that we don't create hurt and resentment. So we see couples and and the way that they have disagreement, like Robert said, how you disagree is how your relationship goes. And we go, okay, this one's, they need a lot of work. There's a lot of emotional flooding. There's a lot of dysregulation. There's a lot of contempt. There's a lot of criticism, defensiveness. There's a lot of stonewalling. These are all predictors and you can, they're very clear. And what the thing about the research that I love is that by measuring stuff, we have the recipe for how we can change those things. It's interesting. And, and I, I did some research on Gottman because I, I found that in your bio on your website. And I, I don't disagree with a lot of the things that he said, but I noticed that most of his studies were based on Western U.S. couples. Being an avid traveler like I am, I can arguably say that how people perceive marriage, and I've been to some indigenous cultures, how people view marriage in cultures across the world is markedly different than how like the Western world views marriage. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how much efficacy some of his data actually has when it only pertains to a very small, isolated group. Any thoughts around that? Yeah, I have a thought about that because I think it, an insult is an insult mm-hmm. in any language. And True. when you're insulted and or attacked, right, you are going to, you're going to default to one of about six patterns. And sure. so that's really the part that, that he found in the research really was what happened when one person really started to hammer hard down on the other person. Like, did they close off? Did they communicate? Did they stonewall? All these types of things. And so regardless, I think regardless, I think the piece that we can extend beyond Western civilization is 
maybe unless you have a lot of Zen in your life and that you were taught to just, okay, I can just accept feedback. You're probably going to be a better partner, but, but if you're constantly just going to fight because fighting is universal, doesn't matter the language, right? You're constantly going to be fighting and in strife, then you're just not going to want to be around that person because there's no peace, right? Most of us just want to come home. Most of us cohabitate. Most of us find relationships that bring us peace. And the answer for why people don't have peace is really about how they disagree whatever language that is. And certain, certainly you can, when you look at the world as a whole and Western, Western US or, or Western culture and, and their version of marriage, yeah, I, I agree that it's a small N when we come to the research. But I think the principles about how we disagree and how we fight, I think those are the things that, that can be extrapolated to the whole of humanity right? Because it doesn't matter whether you're Genghis Khan getting mad, raising your sword, and I'm going to go conquer somebody because he had a bad day at home. I think kindness in relationships is the key, right? Learning how to correct and learning how to repair and be in love. And, and you see that and, and you've seen this in relationships, like it, pick your country and then tell me the relationships where you observe kindness and caring. And then tell me those relationships where you've seen a lot of strife. And then you tell me which one, who wants to be around each other more. Mm, I love your response. And I, I didn't necessarily know if that would have had a direct correlation or impact on that. But I just noticed that most of his, when I was looking at sort of his research, it was all U.S.-based primarily. So I was just curious if that I, had. I do want to throw one thing in that he did repeat in later years a lot into different demographics. And he actually did a lot of studies even in LGBTQ communities and gay and lesbian couples and found the same data held up and even in gay and lesbian couples. So he actually did extend it just beyond the the basic male-female role in the U.S. So it, it actually is very applicable to every relationship because at the end of the day, it's really all about what it's about is emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. That's really what it comes down to is emotional intelligence. And I don't know that there's anywhere in the world where that isn't important. True. Good point. There's probably a bevy, uh, oh, they're not probably, there's a bevy of reasons why couples would get divorced or ultimately just aren't a good fit together. In one or two words, this is like a hot seat uh, question around, if you will. If the two of you had to just pick one obstacle to help some of your ailing couples that come to you based upon a series of types of disagreements, for example, I'll just give you a few examples. Just in a couple of words, I want to hear individual perspectives. So, Charlotte, I'm going to say, if couples are constantly having financial disagreements, hmm. in one or two words, what would you say needs to they should be doing in order to resolve that? That's actually quite easy because I would say all disagreements fall into the same process. And so whether that's if you're disagreeing over sex or money or kids or parenting, First of all, it's the mindset of number one, okay, this is a time to grow that through this conflict, number one is uh, it's an opportunity for us to stretch ourselves, to create more mutual understanding and to deepen our, our love for one another. So yes, we're frustrated right now. Yes, we have a lot of this stuff coming up, but like through this process, we have that mindset that we're going to grow through it. And then from there, here's the analogy that I love. And this actually comes from Gottman as well. When you have two people who are disagreeing, Imagine that they're holding up two fists, right? Robert's got his fist up and I've got my fist up and we are fighting for something and we're super entrenched in whatever our idea is. The problem is that people aren't talking about what's inside their fist and what's in the fist is their their specific core values, their needs, their dreams, their goals. What they're fighting about is the problem. They're not actually looking at what's underneath the problem. 
So to get to that point, we have to really talk about the dream or the value that's beneath it. So regardless of what the problem is, we have to stop being so entrenched in our ideas that we can open the fist and talk about the why that's behind it, the deeper context, and then realize, okay, his core need is this. My core need is that. These two things don't have to be in conflict with each other. So I need to stop for a second, postpone trying to persuade him and first understand his position. What is his core need here? Because then we can compromise on all the little stuff around the fringes. If I know his core need is X and mine is Y, we set those two things down on the table and go, how can we find a solution that honors your core need and my core need or value or dream or goal or whatever that is? Because we can compromise around the who, what, when, where, why, as long as both of our needs, our core needs are met. Robert. Infidelity. Ooh, trust. That's a trust (laughs) issue. That's a trust issue. And I almost forgot the question because she did such a good job there. But yeah. What would you, if if a couple came to you and they were suffering from infidelity and you were charged with helping them through, work through this? What's the, is, and this is a really, that's going to be a difficult question to answer, but is there like one focus that you're going to take to start off things with them? I think the first focus that, that is going to come up is this relationship worth saving. I think some people are just, we have couples come to us who've had this very, this very specific thing. And the one person, usually it's the one who stepped out is just, just come to counseling with me and we can work this out. And I think you just got to say, look, is this an absolute hard line for you in the sand where that is such a breach of trust that you're never going to trust him and bring and take him back? And if it is, you have to decide whether or not you want to move forward. And if you want to move forward, then you have to build trust. Absolutely. And it's so hard, right? Because how are you ever going to trust? And trust is based in forgiveness. And that one is going to take some time. Yeah, I think that I would probably have the most difficult time with that one as well. Yeah. Is that something that not that I'm not trying to get personal, but how would the two of you counsel yourselves in a situation like that? I think what's interesting, even in my own perspective, and this isn't a problem that we've ever had to deal with, fortunately, but I think sometimes it's the initial shock of it when you've told yourself your whole life that I would never stay with someone that would ever cheat on me. And that would be an absolute hard line. Absolutely not. And then when it happens to people, I think the first thing they have to actually come to terms with is the fact that they actually do want to work it out. Mm-hmm. And that in itself, pre-discovery, when you think, oh, I would never do this. And then after discovery, you're like, actually, I think I want to try to work this out. And the truth is there's, it doesn't work out for everybody. Some people aren't willing to to do that, but there were already problems in the relationship before that infidelity happened. Yeah. What led to that point? Yeah. What led to that? And are we willing to really go back and work on that relationship number two or relationship number three with the other person, the same person? Are we willing to go back and figure out what that was and create it? Because you're never going to go back. I think that's another key thing. Like when people are like, I just want to recreate what we had in the past. Yeah. And that isn't, yeah. isn't going to happen. We're never going to go backwards, but we can go forward. And what do we want to create in the future? What kind of a relationship do we want like moving forward? And so I think that first thing that people really have to come to grips with is, do I actually want to work this out? Yeah, And that's that's the 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 beginning of their second relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's how we pose it. Okay, this is your new marriage. Moving forward, can you fix the things that led to this? Because those new patterns we talked about. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because sure, somebody stepped out, but somebody Mm -hmm. stepped out for a reason. What about substance abuse? Oh, so hard. So hard, especially when it, it discontinues, right? You're just firing away. Yeah, this is awesome, dude. We got <laughs> a, a little impolite, girlfriend. That's it. That's it. 
It is, again, I will also, I'm going to go back to the patterns again, because are we willing to really dig into the trauma and the stuff that led to that? So my family background, I've had, I've lost two brothers to addiction. And so I have a very close place in my heart and there's addiction runs pretty deep in my family. And there's a reason, there's a reason, there's a reason for that. There's a reason that some people are susceptible to those things and there's past trauma. Are we willing to look at the triggers that are happening in the relationship? Are we willing to heal the past wounds, the past traumas? Is the spouse willing to accept some responsibility in that relationship? So there is substance abuse, right? But is the spouse going to be, and we've seen this, is the spouse just, that is a you problem. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with me. Like when you fix you, then come back. And that's a very difficult position to put the person in because maybe the substance abuse individual is using as a coping mechanism for something that's happening in the relationship, yeah. getting or happening, right? It's interesting. And, Everything that I've heard you both say in terms of counseling and therapy, it always seems to come back to the idea of being able to work together and communicate effectively and resolve conflict. But ultimately, systemically, what are, what I'm hearing is that you have to learn to channel and grow as an individual first and foremost and address the things that you're suffering from and not only dump those onto your partner, but expect them to participate in your own growth in that space because like mm -hmm. they're responsible for your problem. So it's interesting, which sort of begs the question, if ultimately we're solely responsible for who we become and who we are and how we behave and how we respond and all those things, we should fix our shit first before we step into any sort of relationship, right? But how do you know you have shit if you're not in a relationship you won't. with somebody <laughs> that's like paradox. in that close encounter to hey. all that shit, call that out? It is your partner's responsibility to shed some light on your shit. They will always expose even the things that we thought we fixed or the yeah. things that we thought we were over. Our partner is going to continue to expose more within us. So waiting until we're ready or perfect or we fixed all of our stuff isn't going to happen. Like we're just going to have to co-evolve together and recognize that we're going to, we're still going to trigger stuff in each other that we haven't even found yet. But the beauty is, the beauty of this thing is that she will help me, my partner will help me to become a better person by uncovering some of that crap that I need to deal with. Then I can learn to grow and then I can learn how to get past it. And then I'm a better person at work. I'm a better person. I'm a better friend. I'm a better father. I'm a better overall human because she is uncovered some uncomfortable truths about myself, helped me to have enough vulnerability to talk to her about it, helped me come to grips with it and helped me learn how to be a better everything. And so it, it's easy to say when I'm, when I'm ready, when I've managed my stuff, then I can get into a relationship. But if you get into a relationship with the right person who helps you grow, then you're both better humans. Don't you want to be a better human? Yeah. I want to be a better human. And that's the paradox, really, honestly, of emotionally committed relationships is that where in life do we have these two dynamics, right? One, on one hand, we all have a drive for autonomy. We have a drive to not submit to tyranny, to be our own individual. And then on the other hand, we have this drive to be connected to someone, to have intimacy, to be able to have attachment. And where do these two drives that are so paradoxically like different, right? How do we have these two things coexist at the same time? Where do those things coexist more and bash and clash more than within this relationship that we're creating? And so I love what you said a minute ago, Devo, because you said we have to manage our own stuff. The only way to make that work 
The only way to make that work is that I have to be responsible for my own reactions, my own self-regulation, my if I can't control myself, I'm going to start to control him because that's what people who are controlling, that's the problem, right? They can't control themselves internally, so they have to control their surroundings and other people around them so that they feel comfortable inside. So I have to be able to manage my own, the contempt, right? Contempt is the number one predictor of divorce, by the way. That was my number one pattern in our relationship coming into it. I have to be able to control my own contempt, my own reactions, and if I don't, then I'm taking away his autonomy because he has to bend and stretch in certain ways to conform like he did in the early part of our marriage to make me feel comfortable. So we do. It is a paradox because we do, whether we like it or not, all relationships are still going to be codependent. We still are connected and we manage each other. Not it's just the way it is. Like we alter each other's blood pressure, each other's heart rates, are each other's hormones. Like we're constantly regulating each other. So we have to bring the best in us, the higher, recruit the higher version of ourselves so that we're bringing to people in their best to the relationship. Because research has shown that good relationships, healthy relationships actually give life. They actually help us to live longer. Whereas relationships with a lot of contempt and poor emotional regulations, we, we actually die sooner. So it's this giant paradox. And yes, we're affecting each other. And because we affect each other, we have to bring the best version of ourselves. Which is why it's really critical to be, I don't, I don't like the word highly selective, but it's to be very critical on who you do choose to spend this life with ultimately, whether it's your first or second or third or fourth go, right? At some point, you've got to find somebody if you're going to be in a relationship where you can help each other grow. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Someone who's willing to co-evolve with you, I think, is someone who's willing to have hard conversations, someone who's willing to control their own stuff when they're having difficult conversations. That's what's important. That's what's sexy. Like it's not, it's not what most people think, but it's the person who you're willing to have difficult conversations with and that can keep their cool when they do it and co-evolve with you. That's what matters. That'd be like your first date. You start a fight just to see how it goes. It's really a fun game to play. You'd you'd never have a second date, but they'd be like, he's too hard to deal with. Not if you're good at resolving conflict. Yeah, but if you're good, if you're good at repair, right? Finish the sentence for me. So Robert, finish the sentence for me. One of the most challenging disagreements that you and Charlotte have ever had, which actually turned into an opportunity for growth was what? Ooh, I would say about the kids. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say about our, our, we have one more at home, our 14 year old. I think that we most challenging conversations and I remember when and where it was and it was very difficult. And by the way, it's one of our perpetual disagreements over how to parent our last child. Is it because one of you wanted a child and one of you did not? Is that where you're going with that? No, it's one of us. One of us. One of us is more strict than the other. Yeah, One of us is more strict than the other. Probably me. But yeah, no, I've, I think that's probably the one that has given me, yeah, how to parent our children is probably been the biggest disagreement of recent that has taught me how to grow and taught me how to open Charlotte's fist and see the what is deeply held behind why she feels the way that she feels and understand that. And then creates it create now it created empathy and now I understand why she reacts and does the thing that she does. And had we not had those discussions, had I not dug in and tried to understand her position versus just fighting for my position, sometimes we're just fighting right? Just like the old military, I'm just going to take this hill. I don't care how many soldiers are losing the way down on the way up, right? Instead of just understanding why it's important to her, like, why does she want to hold that position so much? Okay. And so I learned and grew, grew and 
hopefully become a better father and a lot more patient with her and a better husband because now I can see her perspective. Mm -hmm. Charlotte, you finished this sentence for me. I know we're running out of time. There's a few other things I wanted to get to. Are we cool on time or do you have to run? Whatever works. Whatever works, yeah. We often remind each other during arguments or disagreements that we're a team. Mm. We're a team. It's not me against you or you against me. It's us against this problem. Let's figure out a solution that honors both of our positions here. Let's find a way to look at what's most important to you. What are your key values here? What are my key values here? Let's find a way to honor both of those things. We're a team. Let's fight that problem. We've had some big stuff, Devo. If you can imagine 31 years, right? We've raised, we have three adult kids. Raising and, and launching adults is no joke. And we had one of our kids that was had suicidal ideations. We went through major depression who we had to put in hospital for for that. And that was that was probably, and I'm trying not to get emotional right now, but and I wasn't even gonna bring that up, but that was one of those moments where it's like this could either break us. And it could have broken us. It absolutely could have broken us. So we've had some really big things. Or we can look at this situation and go, okay, we're we're going to face this as a team. We're going to hold hands and we're going to get through this together. And we're not going to let this harm us, right? Mm-hmm. We're not going to let it split us apart. I'm really enjoying this conversation. I appreciate you both being here yeah. and your honesty. Yeah. Kids are a lot. Raising mm. kids are a lot. Mm-hmm. How long ago was this with your suicidal child? Five, five, six years ago. Five, six, yeah. How much of a, can we switch gears for with kids for a second? How much sure. of a, a role do you think that you ultimately have in raising your kids off to be successful, which is a relative term, but mm. healthy and happy? Let's put it that way. Oh my How much of a role do you think you actually have? I think it's... How much I, do we want to have? How much do we no, actually no. How have? Much, how much... Those are two different conversations. How yeah, much impact do we really have? I'm a father. I often wonder, my kids were around me from zero to seven for most of their life. And then from seven onward, they've increasingly moved into completely different pockets from high school to their peers, to where they work, to all the things that they're doing and what they're watching. Jesus Christ, this little fucker. Yeah, right, I yeah know. absolutely. You're I don't even know how to compete against that guy. It's, I don't even know what to do anymore. So how much of a role, given all those external and external factors that are influencing our children, do you think that we ultimately have and who they become and how healthy and happy they ultimately become? So interestingly, that when I do one of the one of the main processes I do is something called timeline therapy with people to help them let go of their past traumas, their past negative emotions, their past beliefs that are influencing their present. And in every situation, those past things happen before age eight. All of it. I think we have a huge amount of influence in the early stages of their life. I think we have a huge influence between zero and seven. And uh, those influences are that they have when they're little, they're huge. So I heard most of what you just said just now, but then for a few, maybe about 15 seconds, you, your connection went weird again. So you were saying we have a huge amount of influence from zero to seven. And mm-hmm. then after seven, they have all these other things. So any problems that a child manifest as an adult came from that zero to seven is what is that what i heard you say yeah yeah that's a small fraction of a life i would say average human lives to be what 75 roughly though of those 60 plus years that we're still on this planet doing whatever we do 
how ultimately back to the question, how much control do we as, as parents have on that ultimate outcome? I don't think we do it intentionally when they're that age. I think they just watch us, right? And some certainly, and we're talking outside of abuse, that the way that I learned how to manage my emotions, I learned from watching my mom. Yeah. And the way that I learned how to be married, I learned from watching my mom and my dad. And the way I learned how to be kind to people and respect people, I learned from watching my mom and my dad. Like, whether or not I agree with that, like, as I get older, it, but these patterns are driven unconsciously. Like, yeah. it's just well, who we are. It's how we react. And how you react is is how this how the situation works, right? And I think our reactions to certain situations and even our values, right? Like, whether I like dogs or don't like dogs, it's because maybe I had a dog that wasn't, I wasn't raised around dogs and a dog bit me when I was seven or six or something. And next thing you know, I don't trust dogs for the rest of my life. But that's a pattern that was instilled early on. Now, how much? Yeah, but you can them? break that pattern. Yes. Though, you would agree. You can, and yes. that's the point, right? And you guys and have just... broken that pattern. So right. yep. if it stands to reason that you can break the pattern of decrepacy that occurred as children and actually make something of your life and have a successful marriage with the two of you have, then by default, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but by default, it was sort of reason that the role your parents play on you ultimately is really not ultimately going to shape who we become because we can fall into those same patterns that our parents did. And my parents were highly corrosive. And you can say that for my first 10 years of my married life, I, we had a corrosive relationship. So I was like you, Charlotte, I was mirroring that nonsense. Mm-hmm. But after I got divorced, I was like, there's no way in hell that this is supposed to be the point of life. I'm going to date someone for 17 years, have two beautiful children from that. And then it just ends. There has to be some other reason that ended, which ultimately led me down the rabbit hole. Dude, you were a dick. Like some of that was also your fault. Mm-hmm. And so I changed that because I didn't want to become who my father was. And so right. I'm wondering, like, for all intents and purposes, I'm a pretty good father. I've raised my kids really quite well and they're doing some pretty cool, amazing things. But ultimately, like, they're going to go on and become who they become on their own. And I don't, I hope that it's something happy and healthy and productive and giving back to society. But one of my kids might turn out to be a delinquent. and I don't know if I can control that. I think we're all doing the best we can with the resources yeah. that we have. And we extend that grace to everyone that we meet that we're sometimes we don't, we haven't tapped into certain resources that we have. We're just doing the best that we can. I saw this quote yesterday, which I think answers your question perfectly. I should have just grabbed this a minute ago, but It's from Neil Strauss, and he said, when we are young, our caretakers install buttons in our psyche that, when pressed, lead us to react in ways that don't serve our best selves or relationships. One of the goals of adult life is to slowly, patiently, diligently unwire those buttons so that when they are pressed, there is no reaction. Mm. Conversation with God. So there's the answer, right? They're there. They installed those buttons in our psyche, but it's still a choice that we have every day that we can unwire those patterns. I know we're running out of time. Uh, Really fantastic conversation. We could probably do this for a few more hours, but anyhow, before you go, I think my final thought around this is that divorce by many is now seen as a failure. And I first observed it that way. I thought that I had failed at a pivotal part of my life. And I was like, that's what drove me down the journey. So inherently in of itself, that wasn't a failure because it put me where I am now, right? The trajectory. Would you agree that anyone who goes through a divorce, it could also be viewed as a step in the larger journey of everything towards their self-improvement, towards their growth, towards becoming a better version of themselves so they can ultimately meet somebody that they could grow with and become a better person? Or 
being the fact that you are in the business of keeping people from divorcing, would you say that ultimately when you decide that we can no longer help you guys, I'm sorry, you're screwed. You just might as well, you're better off alone. That could actually be viewed as a transformative event in their lives, respectively, towards something bigger and better. I think that, that every time we make a mistake, we learn from it. We can choose to learn from it. And whether divorce is a mistake or not, it's this point of, and you took it as a learning experience. You, you developed lots of introspection around it. Like, how can I be better for the next time? So in that vein where people are getting divorced and they realize that something happened, they don't really know what it is but they spend the time to try to become a better person and a better partner before they do this thing again. I think then it, in that vein, divorce is probably really useful, especially if it was such a corrosive relationship and an example for your children to begin with. Yeah. So I, th- I, I view divorce oftentimes the same way I, I view learning how to walk, right? You have two choices because mm-hmm. when you learn how to walk, you fall down, you get up, you fall down, you get up, you fall down, you get up. You can sit in the ground and cry as most sometimes toddlers do. Right. Or you can just say, nope, I'm just going to, I'm going to learn from that last event and I'm going to move forward and be a better version of myself going on. And if we truly view it that way as an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to be a better person, then yeah, if, especially if there's a lot of other things that are going on when you can't save it. Yeah. I have three questions I ask myself in any challenging situation. And I, and when I, I coach this as well. And so you could apply these same questions to, to a divorce situation. Number one is, how am I creating this? How am I creating this? What role did I play in this pattern? So I can look at that and I can reflect on that. And then number two, what is there to learn from that? And like Robert said, we can learn in any situation, any failure or any challenge that we have, there's something for us to learn. And then the third thing is, what do I want instead? And the what do I want instead is where we get to change our focus. Instead of continuing to dwell on the failure, I get to start to focus my attention on what I want because where attention goes, energy goes, right? So we can start to put our attention on that thing and creating that thing that we want next time. 31 years, what's left in the the next chapter of your life? What's the next pattern you, Mm -hmm. if you could pick from the next pattern you go into, what would that look like? I love where we're at right now. So I'm not interested in changing just yet. Right now, it's all about honestly, connection and closeness and intimacy and peace and fun. You know, we have a lot of fun together still. That's one thing that's carried through a pattern that's carried through our entire marriage. We love to adventure and have fun. And we just do it now with so much more more peace and joy and meaning. And I think that's what relationships offer us is the opportunity to create so much more meaning in our life. When we went through that situation I described to you with our daughter with, with attempted suicide and the meaning that we've when to go through hard things together, the meaning that we've created in our life has been, I, I, it just, it's hard to even express the joy and the beauty that you're able to see in life when you get to create that kind of meaning with someone else. And so mm. I think just more of the same, how do we create more shared, meaningful experiences together? How do we continue to weave our values and our goals and our dreams together and, and have more fun? Mm. I like that. It's been a good show. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. I have a bunch more questions, but I see we're already 90 minutes in. So (laughs) probably at the risk of of losing you, I'll let you run. It's been a great conversation. So I I think at the outset, I had this sort of hypothetical opinion just to have a conversation around it, that that marriage in of itself, it's suffering. And is it really a necessary aspect of life? And I I don't know if the term marriage, we're just going to call it marriage, but the whole idea of partnering with somebody for me is it sacred or superfluous? And and from my perspective, and after conversing with the two of you, I don't think that it's superfluous. I think that it has a sacred 
part in all of our lives as humans. And I think that it's, it's helped shape who we are. So the fact that you, the two of you are doing this work and helping people sort out their bullshit and, and find a happy ending, if you will, to some extent, um, is admirable and um, humbling. So I appreciate all the work you're doing. I agree with your assessment. Yeah, thank you, brother. Cool. Anything else you'd like to share before you drop? How can people find you if they want to? By the way, I saw you guys garden. That's really cool. And you're suffering from the same problem that our garden suffers from with incessant growth of weed. <laughs> yeah. like, it's a nice metaphor for what you do in your life, right? So many metaphors like in gardening. So many freaking metaphors. Yeah. Don't we, we plan- it just goes yeah. bad. Yeah. Complacency is what our garden had yeah. become. So yeah, so I love that. I saw that on your Instagram. Your Instagram is you have you all do a really nice job with it. It's, it's fun Thank to you. watch and it's entertaining and educating. And I've learned a couple of things from you. Thank you. Yeah. So you can find us over at Master Your Marriage. That's on all the social channels. Mostly on Instagram is where we're most active. And our our website is masteryourmarriagepodcast.com. And where we put a show out every week as well. And yeah, if there's anything, any way we can support or help anyone, feel free to reach out to us through those channels. Yeah. What is your show about, your podcast? All and, things and why would, and why relationships. Would one listen? Huh? We dive a lot into specific skills. We don't. We try to have it be a lot more tool-based, a lot less fluff. And we really give out every single week, we try to give out value and tools. Like here's something you can do for this type of conflict. The show that we have coming out next week is is around compromise. We have a show coming out next week also about, what is the other one? Emotional, perpetual problems, emotional regulation, like anything that's going to help benefit relationships. And and who is your ideal client? Or is it, do you have a niche that you look to work with? Anyone who's in a relationship and you have two people who are willing to do whatever it takes to create joy, I, I think is our target audience. We tend to attract people who are in their 40s, professionals that have worked really hard and put their relationship in 10th place. And now they're realizing that they're suffering the consequences of that. That's our typical client. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been fun. And do you bring couples onto your show or it's just the two of you? It's just the t- mostly the two of us. Occasionally we'll have a guest on. That'd be an interesting dynamic where you actually yeah. solve some a couple's problems on the I show. Know. Yeah, who would yeah be we're thinking to, about it. Who would be ballsy enough to do that? Maybe we'll have you on, Devo. <laughs> I'll bring my partner on. We, yeah. So far, we don't, we're really good at conflict resolution. I would love to be on your show if that's something uh, uh, like well, that. If that was the take that you did. We haven't done that yet, but I have thought about it and it would be interesting. We just have to have people who are willing to be vulnerable in front of lots of people. Yeah. We'll be, I'll be your guinea pig. I don't know. I don't know if she would want to be part of it, but I would 100% do it. I think it'd be fun. Cool. All right, I love it. Well, thanks for having us. This was a lot of fun yeah, for us. It's been great. Yeah, it was. Good Thank conversation. You You're more than welcome to drop after the show ends. I have to do a few wrap ups. It'll take me about 30 I've... seconds or so. But if not, sayonara. It's been fantastic. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Always. Thank you for listening to Master Your Marriage. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, then we want to hear from you. Just go to MasterYourMarriagePodcast.com and send us your question. Oh, and while you're there, you can also check out our retreats and events and even apply for coaching. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get advance notice of when the next episode drops, plus show notes and many extras. Thanks again for tuning in.